0: Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 125 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend, Toby. Hey. My brother, Andrew. Bonjour. And my husband, Dylan's the sound recordist. Bonsoir. Oh, good knowledge. Mm. Oh la la. They say that on Bluey. Good knowledge, mate.
1: What's Bluey? Oh, Toby. How do you not know about Bluey? Toby. You're a man of culture and understanding. <laughs> That's true. And yet.
0: Bluey is only the best kid show out there. It's great. It follows a family of blue healer dogs in Australia. Oh,
2: that's adorable. It's very good. It is one of those rare ones where it's tolerable by adults. You guys don't hate watching it.
0: Not even tolerable. Andrew, back me up here.
1: It's actively good and I might watch it even though I'm no longer involved in watching Maggie. (laughs) What? (laughs) Wow.
0: There were times that we were hanging out together and at the end of the night, Andrew would be like, I might go watch Bluey before I fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's pretty funny. I haven't actually done that yet. Yet, but it's it's uh, crept into the back of my mind. Yet is the key word.
0: Um, guys, I don't have any shame. I'm just going to put that out there. But I did visit a little free library right before the recording. I was like, huh, it would be mm-hmm. funny if I picked up shame literally in the 30 seconds before I start recording. But there wasn't anything <laughs> good. Um, I did sadly drop off the Hotel New Hampshire and Summer Suns into the little free library for someone who will love them more than me. RIP. Forever home.
1: I do feel like we do owe it to our listeners to say that there has only been about 20 24 hours in between our two recordings? Not even. Mm-hmm. Because we um, we are recording like close together because people are traveling a lot during the summer, so we don't have to you know record across major time differences and whatnot. So it would be crazy if anyone had shame considering there's not been an opportunity.
0: Are you implying that the only reason mm-hmm. I don't have shame is because it's been 24 hours? <laughs> no, just kidding.
1: Yes. It's not an <laughs> implication, it's a fact.
2: <laughs> Dylan, I'm going to call you out. I'm going <gasps> to reference a private text message you sent me the other day with some incendiary news, which was that you were reading the audiobook for Terry Pratchett's Guards Guards. Yes. And now I demand you tell me what you think of it.
3: Well, no, Toby, remember a few months ago, I was asking Toby about like, hey, you really love Terry Pratchett and everything. And even though I think the Discworld is dumb, (laughs) if I were to read one Terry Pratchett Discworld book, which would it be and Toby mm-hmm. thought very hard and he recommended Guards Guards? But the thing is, is that you can order like online, like a beat up paperback version of it, and there was like no audiobook of it until uh last month. A lot of Terry Pratchett books, the Discworld series, they're doing new re records of all of them. Okay, so this one I wish I remembered the narrator's name because he was really good, and Bill Nye does the footnotes.
0: Ooh, love him!
3: Oh, they got Bill Nye to just do only the footnotes. So you know, you'll be listening to the book, and then all of a sudden, Bill Nye will come up and say, "And that's what goblins are."
0: You know, that's <laughs> a pretty good gig though, because like similar to another kids' show, Llama Llama, Jennifer Garner does the voice of the mom, Mama Llama, in that, um, and she just has to come in and just record her lines, and then go. Like Bill Nye doesn't have to read the whole book; just you know, a few pages, and he's done.
1: Are you suggesting that Jennifer Garner isn't a full professional (laughs) and doesn't know the whole story of every script?
3: But guards, guards, it's funny because I could tell how like toe in the water of Discworld it is that like, I can very clearly see that there's a lot of really big things that we're referencing here, but we're going to have a little cute story that just follows like the cops in the Discworld and then trying to solve cases. The guards. The Guards. Guards. And it is really funny. It's very, like, it's not straight up, like, Hitchhiker's Guide, but it's really close in terms of, like, how broad the comedy is and, like, how funny the setup is. I, I guess there is no way unless you start from, like, Discworld 1 and then go all the way through. Because there are times when it's like, I have no idea. And Dylan and I can be talking <laughs> to me for 30 minutes about what's going on right
1: now.
2: Yeah, Dylan, that's, a that's like, a feature of the books is, like, sometimes, like, I bet you were missing a lot less than you thought. Because often okay. Actually, it will just you know reference stuff or just like suddenly drop a bit of world lore that like is it seems like he's implying you should already know it but you don't know it he's just throwing
3: it on you yeah exactly and i think they do a really good job of basically nobody respects the guards the guards don't respect themselves and the guards don't respect this world they just try to survive so a lot of the stuff does mm-hmm. not come back and impact them i would give it either a really high three stars or a low four stars where it's like three stars high that's why I said high three stars because it like goes up there's against no like partial stars there's so many like parts where it's like I do not care about <laughs> this magic world or I do not care about like how this magic libraries work <laughs> and stuff but then like when the guards are just by themselves like they're so funny it's like yeah I know I really like getting to the groove of that and it, it was a real good choice for like the first one that gives you kind of a taste of the disc world without like overwhelming you it's still overwhelming but not mm-hmm. overwhelming you like crazy
0: it was really cute guys Dylan came in last night and said i've never you know reviewed a book for the podcast before and they're gonna ask me the stars and it's so stressful what how many stars am i gonna give it and <laughs> I'm like oh sweet summer
2: child <laughs> all of a sudden
3: yeah because i and the thing is too i can imagine how it's like a high four stars if you're really into fantasy mm. or not even really if you're like yeah. a passing into fantasy when
2: dylan texted me it's, it's it was just shocking because <laughs> as a fantasy reader it's just funny to hear dylan be mystified like so you're interested in the Magic? (laughs) Why? (laughs) <laughs> and like that's been like ever since middle school and i tell him about the books i'm reading he's like yeah but you know the magic it can't happen right it's not real
3: <laughs> but i know that there is a sequel to this one so i might check well, out there's this. many yeah well but following like the guards specifically
2: yes um so well they're broken into like separate series depending on the main characters so this is the commander vines series so it more features him but they tend to be he kind of uses these characters to write about different genres and so this is his like police procedural series through the lens of Discworld. So they tend to be police procedural type stories or detectives type stories.
3: They're really fun.
0: Was it good soundtrack for playing your Zelda game?
3: That is true. I also listen to it when playing Zelda a lot. So that helps was, was like I can't really be mad at um magic and mythic things when I'm like killing a bunch of forest <laughs> demons so I can get a nice hat.
0: Dylan loves getting yeah. fancy hats in that game. And in any game, really.
2: It's as you should. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it, Dylan. As much as
1: you could with your infirmity.
3: And I guess the bigger comment is I do kinda want to check out the sequel.
0: There you go. That's a good compliment. Yeah.
1: There you go. One last thing for our intro. I just I came upon this piece of information, which I hadn't learned before. Maybe a lot of people know it, and I'm just late to the party. But I know a lot of people in this uh, podcast recording are fans of the super group Boy Genius. Yes. Yes. Did you guys know that they started as a book club? Wow. Yeah. According to Stereo Gum, they apparently uh, started as when Julian Baker and Lucy Dacus had a long distance book club where they gave each other recommendations. And upon further digging, you can actually find like a, a whole list of different books that they recommend. They're very active. All three of them, including Phoebe Bridgers, uh, not to be left out from the book party, <laughs> uh, recommend a lot of books. You can actually find like a read list and like an active way of like getting recommendations from them. So they're book friends. And so it's cool to have uh, music you admire. And- And also people who are true blue book folk. Uh Nice reference. I
0: didn't know that. Do you remember offhand, like some of the books they read?
1: Yeah, some have overlapped with our podcast. I I remember that they've recommended East of Eden. Hmm. They've also recommended things like The Left Hand of Darkness uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin, Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. Mm. Exit West, which was featured very prominently on our podcast. of Small Things. They've got good taste. Yeah,
0: that's pretty good. I'm in it. That's a hit
1: list. 10th
3: of December. They're very close listeners, so.
0: When you started with East of Eden, I was like, oh, no, it's going to be a smart person book club. But then.
1: Well, it was just the first one on the list. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's great. I might um, check out that Goodreads and add some more shame.
2: Yeah. Very curious.
0: Speaking of reading books, um, Andrew, did you read a book this week? And did it have to do with, you know, fantasy worlds of any kind?
1: Boo. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it was. More, it's more sci-fi than fantasy. Yay. So um, take that, Billy. <laughs> But yes, Mm -hmm. I did read a book. It's called This Is How You Lose the Time War by two authors, count them two, Ahmad El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Lose, lose, lose.
0: Is it just like you break your watch? Is that the answer?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one Mm -hmm. way. That's one way you could lose the time war. You could also not learn how to read the hands on the time. I wonder if they still teach kids to do that. Mm. I bet they do. I bet they do. That's like three
2: full days of lessons that they would be like, I don't know what to fill this with otherwise.
1: (laughs) But yeah, so this book has like sort of, I think it came out a few years ago, but recently has been showing up on Book Talk a lot or on Bookstagram, all the different books to some things, <laughs> book threads, who knows. So I saw a copy in a bookstore in Sogarty's that was really cool called Inquiring Minds. Bailey went there when she visited. Great. Highly recommend. And so I picked up a copy, and that was relatively recently, and I got lucky that it was drawn for me. But let me give you a little uh, logline-ish thing, Uh, and then I'll go into a little uh, review-ski. You know, how the format Mm -hmm. of the podcast always works. Review-ski. Ooh. In Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone's time-and-space-sweeping intergalactic intimate novel, two enemy super soldiers, able to do nearly anything, find themselves irrevocably linked. Exchanging letters across an infinite universe, the two begin to do the one impossible thing, find love. (gasps) Though doing so sends ripples they can't comprehend the consequences of.
0: Is it like Will Grayson, Will Grayson by John Green and David Leviathan that, like, they each write alternating characters?
1: Maybe. Ooh. It's not expressly said. Maybe uh, there are interviews, but I didn't want to spoil Toby's research. There are two characters, so it would make sense. But
2: uh, from the interviews, I'll just answer this right now because I want to. Uh, no, they did not write each like half of it. They they both worked on both sides' letters. Mm, so. Cowards.
1: I think that makes sense because uh, they don't. The the like text isn't super different in the voice. It's not like a very mm-hmm. different Stark styles. So that, that doesn't surprise me. So was that clear enough of a description of the book? Yeah. Sure, you know exactly what's going on? Yeah. I'll give a little sort of more context. So it's an epistolary novel. It actually has the exact same, exact same structure as Beautiful World, Where Are You? in that it's a oh. scene from one of the characters' lives, a letter, a scene from the other character's lives, a letter from the other person, and like following that the whole time until, you know, something maybe happens later on. Mm. So it was funny to, I've read that book relatively recently. So it's, it's funny to have read something with literal identical structure. And so if you're wondering what the time war is for context, it's exactly kind of what you think it is. It's basically the doctor who time war. If you, <laughs> if you're a, a doctor who fan, it doesn't involve like, you know, time Lords and Daleks and whatnot, but it involves two sides. Uh, one's called the agency and one's called garden. Explain. And they're sort of opposing explain uh, agency is like hypertechnic. And like technocratic, fascist sort of feeling, and garden is like grown from the earth. You'd think that means a pretty clear dynamic about who's good and who's bad, but it's not that clear. They both seem bad. Mm-hmm. Um hmm. and they're fighting for like a uh, ultimate control of the universe as it were. And these two characters who are called red and blue, hmm. apparently they have other names but they're not uh they're not mentioned.
2: Were they named after the uh, early 2000s internet comedy series about halo characters? What? You
1: know, red versus blue. It might be a wink to it, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so they have the ability to travel what they call threads, which are, you know, your standard sort of multiverse procedure. Where they can go anywhere and everywhere, but in this version they can also go to like distant worlds, sort of more like Doctor Who, where they can go anywhere in that time box. <laughs> but they don't have a time box. They seem to just be able to do it, so that was not clear. But it was a cool sort of conceit. And they're going back and forth. And the inciting incident is Red finds on this like battlefield where everyone is dead, and she has like killed everyone. A letter that says "Burn before reading." Mm-hmm. And in burning this letter, she somehow reads it. And then they go back and forth, giving different letters to each other. Their relationship grows letters are always sort of really coolly constructed and like one is in like the feeling of a net she feels on the net and can read this letter there are a lot of examples that i don't want to spoil because the imagery of those is one of the high points of the book
0: i have to admit if it said burn before reading i don't know i might read it first i might not be able to stop <laughs> myself
1: well this is how you would lose the time more bailey <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's sort of what happens. It's it's a very short book. It's only about just under two hundred pages, so it's hard to get too far into it without getting into spoily territory. But I'll go into some orcs and elves, and hopefully it makes sense. And I and I give y'all enough.
3: Oh, good. Andrew had a nice, light, breezy book this time, so that means <laughs> Dylan foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Are you
1: already using your creepy choosing voice? Keep that voice in its place. <laughs> All right. We'll see. Um, (laughs) so, uh, Orcs and elves, I'll start with some elves. Uh, It's a really cool conceit. It's very inventive in terms of like, again, as I said, these letters, like those are a high point of the book, they're like very coolly constructed. And it's indicative of sort of another elf, which is that the book doesn't really care to make sense in that like, maybe Mm -hmm. this would frustrate you, Toby, and that there's not like a clear sense of how the science of this world works. It's more sci-fi than than fantasy. And they sort of, you kind of just need to know that they can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Like this, they do it. And and for such a short book, I thought that was effective because if they had, like, spent the meager um, geography of these pages <laughs> trying to explain exactly how they traveled in time, I think it would have dragged. Yeah. So I think it worked for that case. And it didn't also, like, didn't always take itself too seriously, which was something I was a little worried about because it sort of starts very high and mighty. But then it gets a little silly sometimes. Like, it's not afraid to, like, throw in the fact that this time they're visiting Atlantis and they all hate Atlantis because it always goes wrong. <laughs> it's always annoying to try to do a job on Atlantis. <laughs> um, so things like that. And so that's really that was really fun the structure of the book overall is also sort of an, an elf because um it's written as i said in like short chapter letter short chapter and it like sort of it's so easy to just read another section and because they're also like both a little short it's like well i might as well read another chapter and letter might as well read mm-hmm. another chapter and letter mm-hmm. and so it, it it drives you forward that way I, I found cool i also think the writing overall is good they like sort of similar to the rest of what i've been saying they're not too wedded to perfect grammar and i think that's good because it's it's people writing to each other so they write in ways that are more emotional than like chromatical sometimes and I think that that's effective. And yeah I think the sort of vibe of the book and the vibe of my elves which will feed into my orcs is that it's cool. (laughs) Cool elves. Yeah. It's Legolas doing a a snowboarding trick on a shield.
0: Wearing sunglasses. Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah, wearing a backwards Tommy Bahama hat. <laughs> um but this sort of goes into my I only really have one orc and it will influence my rating, um but it's not like crazy and I do recommend this book but again, we'll get to that in a minute. But the like thing I kept thinking while I was reading it was sort of is this cool and does that make it good or is it just cool and it's like kind of covering sort of like not that much there Mm. Mm. i feel like that sounded really mean i don't mean it in like a super negative way i feel like i got blinded by the coolness and then sometimes like as i said they like didn't build out the world completely in other ways Mm. i don't know if you've ever read a a book like that
3: so kind of like in the hobbit movies when legolas hops on all the rocks when they're falling down like a video game character and it doesn't look real
0: i have not seen the hobbit movies
3: i
1: have not seen that but you do know that that's not real either right (laughs) tom (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantasy Yeah, so it's, it's one of those things where I think it's good But I had so many people telling me this is like this great, amazing, devastating story And I kind of was just like, no, it's good It's cool mm. I liked it and that's not a bad review, I don't think. <laughs> but it also isn't like a rave.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, it just sounds like it was a little overhyped, especially because it's everywhere, like you said, on Instagram and Book Talk. I have a feeling I can guess what stars it's going to be.
1: Yeah. I feel like a telegraphed this pretty hard, but it's a four-star book.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: It's It's good. I recommend it. I think people should read it if they're interested in it. I think it could just be the fact that it was overhyped for me and I was expecting it to be somehow like more affecting for me, but it it Mm -hmm. definitely has a lot of merit and I enjoyed reading it and I would recommend it to others. So four stars for me, book talk. If you're, uh, if you're angry, I I will never tell you where I live. You will never find me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm interested in it. And it also makes me want to rewatch Doctor Who. So that's fun.
1: Yeah. I
2: just had a clarifying question, Andrew. Like, so for the love story. I'm not um, taking I've questions. Been, I've been trained. Excuse me. <laughs> I've been trained on, um, on such masterpieces as the Time Traveler's Wife. So which one, blue or red, visits the other one when they're a child and convinces them that they're in love with them? Because that's really important to know. <laughs> I'm
1: not going to answer that. Um, fair enough.
0: Well, that was a cool review, Andrew. Ha ha ha! I, no, I, I, <laughs> I am, I am excited to read this book. I'm, I am interested. Uh, Toby, I think this is the first time on the podcast we've had two authors together. I think. Do you have any facts on these authors?
2: Unless you count all the time we've read translated works, because translators' work is important. Jeez, Bailey, way to minimize.
0: We never talk about the translator. Have we
2: ever actually done
1: facts on the translators?
2: <laughs> no, that we haven't. All right. So, yeah, there are two authors here. There's Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Um, and they were both born in 1984, but I'm not going to tell you the rest of their bio at the same time, because that would be confusing. We're going to start with Amal. Um, She is a Canadian poet and writer of speculative fiction. She's published short fiction, poetry, essays and reviews and has edited the fantastic poetry quarterly magazine Goblin Fruit. Since 2006.
1: Ooh, Goblin. Mm,
2: Yes. Uh, Fairly recently, she has been reviewing science fiction and fantasy books for the New York Times Book Review. She started doing that in 2018. She has worked as a creative writing instructor at Carleton University and the University of Ottawa. Um, And that's where she was born, in Ottawa, Ontario, to a Lebanese family. Ooh. She grew up in Ottawa, with the exception of two years spent in Lebanon, beginning when she was six years old.
0: Connection. 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 To my author.
2: I know. She's married and she lives in Ottawa today. And our other boy here is Max Gladstone. Um, He's an American science fiction and fantasy author. He's best known for his 2012 debut novel, Three Parts Dead, which is part of the craft sequence. He has an urban fantasy serial called Book Burners. And he's also, of course, quite famous and successful for co-writing This Is How You Lose the Time War. Gladstone went to Yale, heard of it, where he studied Chinese. Oh, yeah, me neither. Uh, He worked in China for a while, from 2006 to 2008, um, both as a teacher and as a translator for a car magazine. Wish I had more details, but that's fun. And in, I hadn't heard of something like this. I thought it was quite interesting. I referenced Book Burners earlier, um, and he started in 2015 working on that serial. It's a weekly urban fantasy serial, like novel or series of novellas. So it's written by Gladstone, but then a bunch of other authors at the same time, which, you know collaboration. He loves it. The authors he's collaborated with on that series are Margaret Dunlap, Mer Lafferty, and Brian Francis Slattery. So it's pretty cool. It's like they publish it almost as if you would publish like a TV show, but you get these serialized books.
3: I think it's a pretty cool idea. How Dickensian
2: yeah. Yes, very Dickensian. The rest of this is going to be an interview with both the authors, and the interviewer is Elliot Pepper, and it's for his own website. So, uh, Mr. Pepper asks, "What is this? Is how you lose the Time Wars origin story? How did you decide to write this particular book together?" And uh, Max, he kind of gets like one answer at a time from one author at a time, so we only hear about Max's answer here. Max says, "We knew we wanted to write a book together long before we knew we wanted to write this book. I came off a book tour one summer, feeling a powerful need for solitude, and at the same time, for deep connection, as one does after a week or two of constant light chit-chat. I was feeling the miles. I found myself in an Italian restaurant near the Flatiron with a glass of red wine and a folder of short stories that Amal had sent me. We'd been corresponding, writing each other letters for about a year at that point, but I hadn't been able to receive any letters on the road. The stories stood in for letters. Reading them, I thought, these are great. They're really, really great, and there's so much here that I'd love to learn from and to work with to work against i started texting her as i left the restaurant we need to write a book it'll bring the universe into harmony and let dolphins sing i'm sorry what and let dolphins sing is that in the book nope all right okay well i i when i read this interview i was like Ah, surely that's a reference to the book guess not so pepper asks amal how did writing the book change your understanding of time love and war broad question How do you read history differently having written about secret agents dueling to shape it? And Amal answers, I think we were both coming to the book with a sense of wonder around the expression of time in handwritten letters. That sense of folding up a singular moment of yourself and sending it into the future to be read by a person who doesn't yet exist and who will be reading a letter from a person who no longer exists, but was preserved in the amber of ink on paper. Wonder, too, around time stoppages, that a letter can include someone having stopped, perhaps even mid-sentence, walked away, then return to the letter three days later while the person receiving the letter reads it smoothly in one sitting, or vice versa. These all seem to touch on conceptions of time, travel, and intimacy. The vulnerability of committing a truth of yourself to your invention of a person that we were already talking about, already developing, but just getting to explore and articulate and develop them in the book together was just tremendous.
0: Very cool. Let dolphins sing.
2: That is cool. Let dolphins sing. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Every once in a while, I'm struck by the urge. I don't know if you guys have this urge. I'm like, I should start a letter writing tradition with my friends. Nobody writes letters anymore. It'd be so cool. And then I never do it. Dylan, do you want to write letters? Sure. Well, that's the kind of reaction I always get.
0: I did it once, but it was just because I had a crush on the the boy. (laughs) I wanted him to, you know, have a crush on me, but I think he just wanted to write letters. (laughs) this was in college. I had a friend say like, surely he's interested if he's writing these letters. And I was like, no, I really don't think so. Anyway, continue.
2: All right. So the uh, Pepper asks, if this is how you lose the time war as a conversation between the two of you, how does red and blue's correspondence reflect your joint creative process? What do you hope readers glean from your message in a bottle? Uh, Amal says that sense of striving together against and for, as we say in the book, of wanting to impress each other while pushing against our limits, our comfort zones, our areas of familiarity, was very much part of our writing process. You might find, too, as you read the book, that their insights and styles are blending a little, purpling, as you might I'd say, as they share themselves with each other. And this was very much our experience in crafting it. At the beginning of the process, Max wrote about four times as quickly as me, and I had to wait for me to finish my sections. By Act 2, he slowed down, and I sped up to the point where we were finishing at exactly the same time. There's definitely a feeling of synchronizing with each other, reaching toward each other, admiring, and encouraging each other. Hmm. Oh, cool. That's nice. Yeah, makes me want to write a book with someone, but I bet it's not as harmonious and easy as it sounds here. And so I'll end off here with a fun fact. The interviewer asks uh, what books they recommend. Amal recommends Piranesi.
0: <gasps> and
2: Max recommends Circe. So,
3: there you go.
2: friends of the
0: podcast. Definitely Pejos.
1: It would be remiss of me not to mention that their shared author photo is them back to back, each with a sword over their shoulder, and Max is wearing sunglasses. Cool. That's cool. pretty cool. <laughs> so just so you know. They can
3: join our book club with us and Boy Genius.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, great facts, Toby. I actually need a new audiobook, so maybe I'll start reading that audiobook tonight. Mm. Mm. Ooh. So that is... This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal Al Motar and Max Gladstone. Four stars. Four
2: stars. Talk our time. Oh, well, Bailey, we've just heard about a book that looks far into the future and into the past. But to look in the future, you must be a prophet. Anyway, did you read a book this week?
0: Yes, I did, Toby. Very good transition. Oh. I read The Prophet by Khalil Gibran.
1: Prophesize, prophesize.
0: Have any of you guys read this book?
1: No. No. I think I referenced at the end of the last episode that I saw an animated adaptation of it, but I have no idea what that means in terms of how that experience reflects the book.
0: I'm interested to hear about the movie, Andrew, because I think Liam Neeson plays the prophet, which is interesting choice. (laughs) Uh, Yes. So this book, I was peeking on our Goodreads and a lot of Pejos have it on their want to read list, but they haven't necessarily read it. So Mm -hmm. maybe they were in the same boat as me. Uh, This book was given to me, I believe, when I graduated high school by my mom. And it's her copy that was published in like the 70s. And there's an inscription in the front that says, to my good friend, Pam, best wishes always with lots of love, Mary. And Mary's my godmother and my (laughs) mom's best friend. So not only did my mom re-gift, but it just feels like... This is a very nice passing along of the wisdom yeah. of Gibran. So it's very easy to describe uh, the plot of this book because there's very little plot. It starts with a prophet. A He is named Al-Mustafa, and he is about mm. to leave the place where he's been staying, a city called Orphalese. He's been there for 12 years. He's waiting for his boat to arrive to take him back to where he was born. The boat arrives. And as he's leaving, he's stopped by the townspeople who ask, well, before you leave, you have to give us your wisdom. And they ask specific questions and he responds. So the rest of the book is 26 very short prose poem essays on different topics that range from love to marriage to...
2: Putting the baby in the baby carriage.
0: (laughs) To work, to teaching, beauty, death, punishment... Good and evil, that sort of thing. Um, and the structure is something like, and then the mason said, speak to us of houses. And the prophet did an essay about houses.
3: Oh, the mason would. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's like the teacher's like, speak to us of teaching, that sort of thing. So uh, there's very few characters aside from, you know, the mason the teacher, the whatever. There is a woman named Almitra who is the only other person named, but you don't really find out much about her. But you find out the prophet's philosophy um, of life and a lot of advice. I am not as familiar with the Bible as Toby as I know Toby was raised more in church than I was, but people have compared it to Ecclesiastes. Do you know anything about Ecclesiastes? Uh, No. Oh, all right. Well, it essentially reads like a religious teaching, like a book that you could reference if you were like, oh, today I want to learn about pain. I'm going to look at what the prophet has to say about pain and look it up. Mm. And it's pan-religious. It's not specific to Christianity or Islam or anything, which is nice and that there's a feeling of all religions have these basic tenets, you know, love thy neighbor that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the advice really hits and feels poignant and special. So I will give you an example of that.
1: Is this from the section where the the fishmonger's like, "Tell us of anything other than fish. I'm so tired of fish. Oh god, there's too <laughs> much fish."
0: This this is from the ending the ending section, but that would be I
1: heard fish, fish. <laughs> I heard fish. <laughs>
0: I love it. Okay. Page 86. You have been told that even like a chain, you are as weak as your weakest link, but this is but half the truth. You are also as strong as your strongest link. To measure you by your smallest deed is to reckon the power of ocean by the frailty of its foam. To judge you by your failures is to cast blame upon the seasons for their inconstancy. So it's like, okay, that, mm-hmm. ma- that makes me feel a little better. Lovely. Sometimes the wisdom he imparts, I don't necessarily agree with, or I don't I want to say, explain, you know, expound upon. <laughs> so for example, in the crime and punishment section, he said, the murdered is not unaccountable for his own murder. And I don't, it's, it wow. feels a little bit like blame the victim. He keeps going on. Yes, the guilty is oftentimes the victim of the injured, etc. And I'm just like, I don't know, but that sounded good. <laughs> Sometimes it just didn't make sense to me. I didn't get it. Um, like, for example, he says, verily the ocean laughs always with the innocent. O- okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, duh. Like, it, like you know, the yeah. common saying. Is this how dolphins sing?
0: <laughs> um, and then sometimes, you know, it's good advice, but it's cliche because this book was published in the 20s and people have been referencing it a lot. So I think Mm. I mentioned last time my mom put a quote from it in my yearbook, which is very sweet. But also when you're looking up speeches for your wedding, this speech is often quoted. This is Almitra said, and what of marriage master? And he said, love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shore of your souls. Fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. Give one another of your bread, but eat not from the same loaf, sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each one of you be alone, even as the strings of a lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music. Give your hearts, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together, for the pillars of the temple stand apart, and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. That was a long quote, but it, it's I've heard. And now it.
3: Toby has the rings.
0: Exactly. It feels like, <laughs> okay, yeah, this is a passage you'd read at a wedding. So, okay, that is the description of the book. My basic thoughts on the prophet are, somebody said this on Goodreads, and I wish I had their name and I could reference that, but they said something like, if you are a teenager and want to seem deep, you'd really like this book. Or if you're a guy who wants to pick <clears throat> up girls, you'd really like this book. And I, that's a <clears throat> it's kind of a snappy way of saying it, but I, in general, I felt if I had read this book when it was given to me when I was 17, I think it would have hit harder than than it does now
3: seeming timothy chalamet from Lady Bird*. exactly you know bailey
2: with this criticism of the book you're sounding more like scoff it. <laughs> wow <laughs> Continue.
0: So it's not a bad book. It's just, it didn't dazzle me the way it's dazzled a lot of people. I think maybe because they read it in their formative years or, you know, people have referenced returning to it a lot in their lives. Maybe it's better, you know, to put on your shelf and to look at it occasionally versus to read it cover to cover. But for me, it was sort of take it or leave it. This is fine. Best in small doses. It also, I had to, because it's so short, I think it's like 95 pages with pictures. It was very quick, but so quick that I I had to slow myself down and say, like, okay, you're reading the words, but do you understand what they're saying? And sometimes I didn't. But, you know, you have to read read a little bit to to get a sense of it. So all this to say, um, I'm glad I read this book. I'm glad that I can reference it because now I've read it versus just like, oh, yeah, totally. I read that book mom gave me. Yeah, thanks, mom. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But ultimately, I'm just going to give it three stars for me. All right. Uh, Do you have any facts on Khalil Gibran?
2: I do. I've got so many of them. First of all, did you know he was a Lebanese American writer, poet, and visual artist? Ooh, no. There you go. There's also a little intriguing snippet here: was that he was considered by many to be a philosopher, but he himself rejected that title. He's obviously best known as the author of *The Prophet*, which was published first in 1923, and according to this source, (coughs) Wikipedia, has become one of the best-selling books of all time having been translated into more than 100 languages
3: hey happy 100 year birthday Mm.
2: oh yeah as dylan said happy 100 year birthday So he was born in Lebanon, um, but immigrated quite young uh, with his mothers and siblings to the United States in 1895. Uh, His mother worked as a seamstress, and he was enrolled at school in Boston. And he was quickly picked out by a teacher as a creative, precocious boy. And that teacher introduced him to photographer and publisher F. Holland Day. You there, precocious boy. (laughs) Meet this photographer. Meet Day. It's your lucky day. That's what I say to everybody I introduce him to. At the age of 15, he was sent uh, by his mother to Beirut to attend a Maronite school, because that was their religion. He returned back to Boston in 1902. In the year that followed, it was quite a sad year, Uh, his sister, Sultana, half-brother Boutros, and his mother all died of tuberculosis and cancer, respectively. Wow. His remaining sister, Mariana, supported herself and Gibran as a dressmaker, and I think she is supported him for quite a while as he kind of got his stuff off the ground. In 1904, he began publishing articles in an Arabic language newspaper, and he also had his first public exhibit of his drawings, which were championed by none other than his
0: childhood mentor, Fred Holland Day. Day keeps coming back up. I told you this day would come. Uh, the book does have uh, 12 of his drawings in it. They're pretty
2: cool, right? Like I, I saw a smattering that. Like he had, had serious talent. Yeah, they're OK. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. Maybe I saw some different ones. So uh, Day continued to kind of introduce him around town. Uh, eventually, he introduced him to a woman called Mary Haskell, who ran an all girls school. And Haskell kind of stepped into the role of Gibran's patron. Uh, she paid for him to study art at the Académie Julian in Paris in 1908 and there gibran had the privilege of meeting sculptor august rodin who reportedly once called him gibran the william blake of the
1: 20th century which is pretty hmm? cool pretty good
0: did he have to think about that comparison a lot
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 it's because rodin made the thinker pages if you if you don't get it we're not we're not buttheads <laughs> Um, Haskell
2: also funded Gibran's move to New York City in 1911. He settled down in a one-room apartment in the very bohemian Greenwich Village. This is the kind of thing that happened, you know, in 1911 when you're hanging out in Greenwich Village. He met Alfred Knopf of the infamously large publishing house, who would become his publisher. Um, so that was a stroke of, of good fortune. He published his first book of poems and parables, The Madman*, in 1918. And then, uh, you know, a short five years later, he came out with The Prophet. It was not really met with much hullabaloo at the time. The book was never reviewed by The New York Times and only sold 1,200 copies in its first year. It has actually sold now more than 10 million copies, making Gibran one of the best-selling poets in the world.
0: Mm.
2: We're jumping forward here, the prophet experienced a resurgence of popularity in the 1960s. Um, his translator and Middle East historian, John Cole, said, quote, Many people turned away from the establishment of the church to Gibran. He offered a dogma-free universal spiritualism as opposed to orthodox religion, and his vision of the spiritual was not moralistic. In fact, he urged people to be non judgmental. Bailey, agree or disagree?
0: Agree. There's one point where you know someone asks him to talk about clothing, and he says, you know, it's better to be naked. So, in so many (laughs) words,
2: tight. He was uh, very active in a New York-based literary group called the PEN League, uh, which was a subset of the Majara movement, and their members promoted writing in Arabic and in English. Uh, He would end up publishing nine books in Arabic and eight in English, and they all have similar themes to the Prophet. They talk about love, longing, death, and. Explore religious themes through his lens. Uh, And here's your final fact: Uh, grim as it may be, is he died of cirrhosis of the liver on April 10th, 1931, in New York City. And that is Khalil Gibran.
0: All right. Well, thank you for those facts, Toby. Um, And thank you, Mom, for this book. That is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Three stars.
2: Thanks, Pam.
0: (laughs) Andrew, do you have any fun games for us this week?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. But do you have any fun answers for me in the game we'll play this week? Yes, also. All right. I need you to put on your prediction hats because both of the books we read this week are sort of future looking, one a profit, one a time war. I need you guys to predict the future for me in this week's game, which I very creatively named Book Predictions.
0: Ooh okay
1: you know
2: andrew i will put on my prediction hat and then in respect to you i will doff it
1: good so the way the game this week is going to work is we have you know we have fun here we've read books by a lot of different authors and there's been some authors that we've read a fair amount or we all read the book at the same time some book mm-hmm. authors we feel pretty strong that we know sort of what their bag is you know Mm-hmm. So what I need from you is we're gonna do three rounds of this game where I'm going to give you an author and you guys are going to predict their next book.. Oh. Okay. So it's going to be sort of creative for you. Um, Mm -hmm. I picked three pretty heavy hitters that I feel like y'all will will have some fun with. You will get two points if you're declared the overall winner. But there's a bonus point available for plausibility, which will hopefully mitigate if someone just makes me laugh my my butt off. But but doesn't actually give an answer that makes any sense. Dylan. (laughs) All three of you are available to play. And I think you all are familiar with these authors. So are you ready to try? Let's do it. First... This one, if you get this right, you probably have a great idea because he's known for great setups. What do you think Grady Hendrix's next book will be?
3: Mm.
0: I think he's going to continue in the haunting you know, genre. He did Haunted Ikea and he just did a Haunted House. I think he's going to do a Haunted uh, Applebee's and it's going to be called <laughs> How to Eat at a Haunted Applebee's, a Chili's Story. What do you guys think?
3: <laughs> well- I think he's already done ghosts. So I think now if he has to keep going through all like all the horror stuff, I think he hasn't touched anything exotic worldly. So he could do mummies. Ooh. And more importantly, he needs mm. to have like the good hook of like the type of book it is. So I think he's just gonna do a Twilight romance and call it a dating guide to mummies.
1: Mm. Ooh. I just need to
3: think of a title that Bailey would buy instantly if she saw on the shelf. I
0: mean I would buy anything Grady writes. <laughs>
2: Well, I think that Grady likes to do his take on, like, famous horror genres, and one he hasn't done yet is Body Takeover. So I think he's going to, uh, you know, somewhat contentiously and without the copyright, produce a novelization of the film The Faculty and call it The Teaching Staff. And it'll be be beat by beat exactly the movie The Faculty, only with the actual actors' names instead of the characters' names. And everyone's going to be like, Grady, what? But it'll be pretty good because that's a good movie.
0: Is that like Joshua Jackson? Yes. John Stewart. John Stewart. Wow.
1: Yes. John Stewart is one of the teachers. It's great movie guys. All right. Let's see. I have to put on my hat and see who I think is going to win this round. I got to say, I think it's got to be Dylan here, because Mm -hmm. I truly believe he might actually make that book. However, I will give Bailey the bonus point for probability. Mm -hmm. I just don't. Sorry, Toby. I just don't think he's going to remake a movie.
3: Also, Toby, you were saying it's like he hasn't done a body possession yet. It's like, didn't he just do My Best Friend's Exorcism? Isn't that his famous book? Yeah. But it's different. (laughs) Like, this
1: is aliens.
0: But it's different.
3: Anyway, you should watch the faculty. You'll see what I'm talking about.
1: And I will I will be corrected then. But two points for Dylan, one for Bailey, but there's still two more rounds. All right. Now this one, they have a very specific style, but they could go a couple different ways. What do y'all think Lee Bardugo's next book is gonna be?
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so I know that Libardugo Bardugo is occasionally inspired by like Russian folklore. So I'm going to predict next book of hers is going to be a POV centered on Baba Yaga's house. The house with giant chicken legs. And it's going to be all about what it's like to be this terrifying house that like runs around the forest. And, you know, it's going to have like a relationship with the Baba Yaga in it. And they're going to maybe solve a murder mystery. Maybe mm-hmm. that's pretty much What's
1: going to happen? I mean, I'd buy that book. Yeah. Yeah, me too.
3: I mean, I think she now is like has so many hits and everything. I think she's going to play it like conservative and safe and just keep it a little vague. So probably just have a good title like "The Brotherhood of Secrets." Or something like that. Oh. And it'll just be about hmm. like a secret society working in a nondescript time in a random Eastern European country of how one secret society has to fight the other to control the future or past of the civilization.
1: Mm. Mm. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Losing me a little.
0: Well, <laughs> I think because Leigh Dugo is my best friend, as you guys know, because we live in the apartment she used to live in. Pages, if you didn't know that, it's very true. Not on purpose, but anyway, I think she's gonna you know, continue in the adult world, like with ninth house. um But she's gonna go even darker, even more erotic, and it's gonna be set in the apartment where I live now. But it's gonna have erotic mummies in it. What? No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I <pretty> changed <much> my mind. <laughs>
0: it's gonna be called Dust to Dust. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, Those are three great answers. However, Toby gets all three points because that straight up could be a book she wrote and it would not surprise me. Yeah. I do kind
0: of want to read that Mm, one. mm, mm.
1: Toby stepped up to the plate, hit a home run and watched you guys try to catch up. (laughs) (laughs) Though, it all comes down to this. Bailey has one point. Dylan has two. Toby has three. There's a possibility for a tie here, but it all comes down to this author. And I'm really curious because this one's sort of the most open-ended and least clear of them. What the next book, Jonathan? and Wright going to be? Oh. You could do anything.
3: It's probably going to be a book with a simple title called The Faculty. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> but but it'll be like following like one university's English department as a professor falls out of love of writing and then it follows like his boss and his boss's bosses that from this English department until its original founding in like the 1800s and all of them talking about how hard it is to study writing and to be a writer and the dysfunction dysfunctional families that come along the way
1: Mm-hmm. Sweeping, sweeping, but accurate.
0: I think he's gonna write about a woman. Gonna go, you know, something new.
1: That's completely improbable, baby. Unrealistic. Stuff, get right? out of
0: here. <laughs> it's gonna be her life from conception until death. Um, so you get it starts out like you know that movie, Look Who's Talking, when you see like the baby and. <laughs>
1: It's going to be called Look Who's Talking. You guys are pulling some some big cuts of movies out <laughs> in this episode. It's going to
3: be called Look Who's Talking.
0: Um, and, you know, the common theme is this is a woman. She's talking. It's crazy. The end. Oh,
2: boy. Yeah. Well, Bailey, I'm afraid you're wrong um, because, you know, he he's very good at depicting the lives of young people, I think. And I think he really you're right, though. He's going to be he's going to write a book about two two women, actually. And they, uh, you know, it's a drama about their lives and how it didn't really turn out, how it thought they would turn out and they have a high school reunion to go to and it's going to be called romeo and michelle's high school reunion and they're gonna go and impress everyone with how they've lived their lives
1: what did they invent anything by any chance yeah <laughs> yeah the post-it note guy named art fry <laughs> Who wins? Oh, boy. Guys, You all it was there for the taking. You could have just gotten a plausibility point and probably to a tiebreaker. But Dylan wins because he wins this round by actually answering directly.
3: Yay!
0: <laughs> I've only read one Jonathan Franzen. <laughs>
1: Well, congratulations, Dylan. You win four to three to one. Sorry, Bailey. Mm. Uh, and you are perhaps the greatest predictor of all time, or you'll be made to be a fool. Only time will tell. Mm.
0: Just you wait until Look Who's Talking by Jonathan Franzen shows up on your shelf, and then you'll be eating your words.
3: Grady Hendrix's The Dating Guide to Mummy, is officially copyrighted by me, but I'm willing to
1: part with it for a nominal fee. Sure. <laughs>
0: All right, well, great. Also,
1: like his last book was all about a woman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> great game, Andrew. Um, and good job, Dylan. Great game, Andrew. Sigh. Uh, Dylan, now's your time to continue to shine. It's time for you to choose books at random for us to read next. It's time for The choosing.
1: The choosing, And I'm
3: scared. <laughs> Why would you be scared, Andrew? I mean, all you have to do is just... Think about, you know, your life experiences of everything of you, a podcast host, a loving brother, son, a young man. Like a portrait of the artist as a young man by James Joyce, number 48.
1: Oh, oh, okay. oh boy. No, no, this is good. This is like a 200 page book. You really teased this as though I got Anatomy of Melancholy and I was <laughs> breaking it over here.
0: Were you freaking out this
3: whole time?
1: I was freaking out a little, but I had a sense that it was kind of a trick. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, it's still your choice, but...
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's not going to be easy, but it is not the hardest book, let's say, that is on my list still.
3: That is true.
1: I'm sort of excited.
3: Well, Bailey, if you were to make a portrait of an artist as a young man, you would need to have, like, details in the painting, right? Uh-huh. You would need to have, like, a boy, snow, maybe a bird. <laughs> Cause you have number fourteen, oh. Boy Snow Bird by Helen Oyeyemi.
0: Okay, this is exciting. Ooh. This book was given to me by listener of the podcast Pey Kate. Kate, I think you gave this to me in 2014. So now I'm finally reading it. So sorry. But I'm excited. I obviously, Kate recommended it and she has good taste. And I remember pretty much liking White is for Witching, but thinking it was a bit confusing. I did read it when I was, what, three months postpartum. So, you know, you never know. Maybe this one will make more sense to me. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Who knows? All right. So that means in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Boy Snowbird by Helen Oyeyemi. And Toby is reading Planet of the Eights by Pierre Bull i cool.
1: Nice.
0: Thanks for listening to the to read list. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the story graph at the to read list podcast.
1: And if you are unstuck in time and space, but have a little bit of spare time to leave a little iTunes review, please leave us a review and rating on your podcatcher of choice. uh, Apple podcast in particular, it helps boost our availability and it makes us feel good. We've actually gotten some really nice reviews recently and it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy and side so we do really appreciate it it's true and um if you have any
2: friends or family that might be interested in this podcast sit them down break out your white robes and your long white beard and say i have a prophecy for you you're gonna listen to the podcast and you're gonna love it um because word of mouth is our best uh, advertisement and um when you tell people that you like this podcast they believe you because of the beard and the robe
3: yeah
1: <laughs> It's true.
0: Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.